0: spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
1: Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another edition of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. If you listened to last week's program, you have been apprised of some of the developments that uh, we will be addressing in the upcoming programs. This is probably one of the most critical periods in recent history for both North America and the world in light of the recent elections. And the implications for those elections in the greater scheme of things, and in particular for cultural resource management and heritage preservation, are issues that uh, we have to deal with uh, as uh, President-elect Donald Trump enters into the approaching stages and the inauguration and his upcoming ascendancy, if you will, to the presidency. And uh, we spoke about some general issues on the topic, and we'll be trying to specify and get into some details on some of the major situations that we are going to be confronting, both generally and as part part of the heritage community in the upcoming weeks. My first guest is probably the most appropriate person to bring in on this particular issue, Dr. Tom King has uh, one of the more eclectic and extensive backgrounds in archaeology anthropology and historic preservation he is one of the crafters of some of the fundamental items of law and has been involved in the uh, sort of evolution of contemporary cultural heritage management legislation as well as implementation in his various positions uh, in our profession Tom is a veteran, a U.S. Navy veteran, and former employee of the U.S. Advisory Council of Historic Preservation, as well as uh, having participated in a number of other uh, government agencies and has been involved in some of the key issues in cultural heritage management over the past 30 years. Um, Tom has written numerous textbooks on this matter, uh, has uh, provided some critical input and is probably the most uh, esteemed and uh, well-informed individual on legislative matters, as well as having done extensive research, especially in the Pacific in, in Micronesia and Kiribati, and a variety of other areas. And uh, Tom has also been uh, involved in the Dakota Pipeline dispute, uh, which is one of the issues that we brought brought on and discussed last week. And it is my pleasure to bring in Dr. Tom King. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank
2: you very much, Joe. I'm glad to be here.
1: Tom, let's talk a little bit about uh, the pipeline issue itself since uh, that sort of took form uh, in advance of the Trump election. Why don't you provide us with a little bit of background on what the uh, general situation on the pipeline was and then key into the heritage elements of it?
2: Well, you have a, I don't know what, 1,700-mile pipeline that uh, uh, Dakota Access is putting in, Energy Transfer Partners is putting in, they are basically doing it without any effective federal regulation. They're able to get away with that because the only serious federal connection to the project is via the Corps of Engineers issuing uh, permits, to cross waterways and fill wetlands under the Clean Water Act and a couple of other uh, smaller authorities. And the Corps of Engineers takes the position and has embodied it in its regulatory program regulations that it is responsible essentially for considering the environmental impacts of a project, including its impacts on the cultural heritage of all kinds, only within those small stretches of a pipeline that are actually fairly directly crossing a waterway. Now, there's something over 200 of those on the Dakota Access Pipeline, but despite that... Uh, you know, you might think that that would say to the core, "G, we really ought to look at the impacts of the whole thing, but it didn't. What the core did instead was to say, okay, each of these little tiny stream crossings is not going to have any serious environmental impact, so you guys have no problems. We don't have to do an environmental impact statement. We don't have to do any kind of serious environmental review. We will do things like archaeological surveys of the stream crossings, but that's the size of it. And on top of that, they are, It is again, the way they do business, they allow the applicant to hire the people who do all the studies, and they basically pay attention only to what the applicant's contractors say. Now, the applicant's contractors may be as honest as the day is long, but they can still be fired if they say the wrong thing. So it's it's a, a fox guarding the a a hen house situation. Um, so the Corps went forward without doing an environmental impact statement, without any serious consideration of alternatives. Uh, did reroute cause the project to be rerouted to avoid uh, potential impacts on water in urban areas, water serving urban areas, but put it right next to the Lakota of the, the the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, where it will affect their water, which is itself. An aspect of cultural heritage, besides being what you drink and what you got to drink to stay alive, um, so a lot of problems, uh, which led to the the occupation of the area, which led to litigation, uh, which led to eventually the administration taking the 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 step of saying, well, no, you can't bore under the Missouri River right now. Uh, while we sort of sit and think about it a little bit more. And that's sort of where we are at the moment.
1: Let me ask you another question. Uh, Obviously, the Corps of Engineers was responsible for the regulatory elements of the stream crossings. But as a pipeline, what is the role of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission on this particular situation? And how do those two elements uh, merge or come together?
2: No. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has no role. And this is an example of what's wrong, I think, with our environmental laws, that FERC regulates natural gas pipelines. It does not regulate oil pipelines. So even though the two kinds of projects have very similar impacts, though natural gas blows up in different ways than oil, Even though the impacts are very much the same, the regulatory schemes are totally different and the oversight agencies are totally different. Now, that said, I don't want to imply that FERC does a great job. FERC has its own problems. But um, it's one of the things that I think drives people, drives ordinary people crazy that the the regulatory the environmental impact regulatory system is so complicated and so uh, balkanized that it is practically impossible for any ordinary person to to make any sense of it and so anyway, bottom line no FERC doesn 't have anything to do with this kind of pipeline,
1: but I think you put your finger on something that a lot of people don 't understand and and you've you 've sort of said, well, it really is a muddle, and that is um, that these types of initiatives, they're called undertakings. In some cases, and in particular, what I've heard, and I hope you can clarify this a little bit, the situation of the Corps of Engineers, as, as you said, has been very balkanized. And we get into these situations where, in a sense, people really don't know who's in charge. Who's the regulatory agency? Do you think that that's still one of the bigger problems we have, irrespective of this particular situation?
2: Uh yeah I think that's a problem, and the fact that the corps is divided up into uh districts and divisions, each of which operates on a military model with the the uh the colonel in command, and everybody you know answers to him and uh that's an issue and and the fact that well, you may wind up okay let's let's turn it around let's take it from the standpoint of a of a company that's trying to build a pipeline. The company is faced with this, this utter morass of, of conflicting, uh, jurisdictions. So a given company may have to deal with the core, maybe with FERC, maybe with, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service for Endangered Species Permits, maybe with the EPA, maybe with A whole host of agencies, and of course the the State Historic Preservation Officer, maybe the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, maybe the National Park Service on uh, Historic Preservation matters, and it becomes extremely complicated. Now, whether it would be better to have sort of a a single master agency responsible, uh, that's debatable. Uh, Nations that have that kind of system have had their own problems, but it's certainly a, an issue that needs to be looked at.
1: Okay. Well, let's then let's focus in then on the heritage matter. We know that there is this entire question about the drinking water, and you had made reference that water in terms of Native, Native American conceptualizations and values has an additional significance and why don't we discuss sort of the heritage matters irrespective of obvious, the obvious environmental and contamination possibilities that exists in the case of a uh, oil pipeline running underneath a water system, whether it be direct drilling or any kind of an avoidance mechanism that they might do. What about the traditional values? have a traditional cultural properties, and why don't you lay out the scenario of the archaeological and preservation contexts that have to be dealt with in a situation like this?
2: Okay. Uh, Part of the problem is, you know, when we use a word like heritage, what do we mean? I mean, what do you mean when you use the word heritage? Um... Maybe I won't hold you to that, but uh, it's it's a question that an awful lot of archaeologists say, oh, well, heritage means archaeological sites. Heritage means antiquities. Heritage means uh, artifacts. Um, Well, okay, that's one kind of heritage, but that's not necessarily what, say, an Indian tribe would define as heritage. Uh, or doesn't exhaust the, the range of things that an Indian tribe would define as heritage. Uh, moreover, the laws, most of the laws don't even use the word heritage. They use words like historic, historic property. Uh, and you get into all these bizarre questions about what is a historic property. Right. Uh, I've been involved in a case invo- that, that dealt with whether a marine mammal was a historic property. And, uh, well, okay, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it's a culturally important thing in that case to the people of Okinawa. Um, we don't have a law that says explicitly you've got to concern yourself with the impacts of a project on the cultural aspects of the environment, the heritage aspects of the environment, the aspects of the environment that... Living people and living communities value. Um, so we end up with situations where a company like Dakota Access may hire a company to do its its environmental impact work, which will subcontract with an archaeological consulting firm. Usually, whatever they may call themselves, they may call themselves cultural resources, cultural heritage. What they will basically do is archaeology, and that's what happened on Dakota Access. They hired archaeologists to go in and walk the right-of-way within those areas that were under Corps of Engineers' jurisdiction and say, well, do you see anything? mm Nope. Nope. Actually, I, I know that the company or many of the people who worked for the company were, very, were perfectly honest, tried to do the right thing, but they didn't have the abilities to identify all the kinds of things that were important to, to the tribe. You know, water, for one thing, is an important heritage resource to uh, an Indian tribe. So the Missouri River is an important cultural resource. Moreover, it it was shown quite uh, vividly that in the right-of-way, right in the area that was was where the construction took place, there were figures on the ground, stone figures, stone alignments, stone cairns, what are called geoglyphs that are basically... uh, 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 zoomorphic figures made of of piled stones that are probably associated with burial sites and ritual sites and so on. Those were all identified by an archaeologist, a tribal archaeologist volunteering for the tribe, who managed to get on the pipeline right of way, and filed a report, a very good report, which went to the court was filed with the court, became a public document, and three days later, the company's in there bulldozing everything away under the protection of guard dogs and security agents uh, who are keeping the protesters from, from doing anything. Uh, so, okay, I, to, to back up, you have, you have the problem of the company defining Heritage, if you will, very, very, very narrowly, and saying, Well, we haven't, we're not going to disturb anything that our consultants have identified as an archaeological site, therefore, we got no problem. And the tribes saying, Wait a minute. Not only are there specific sites that are important to us that you are destroying, have destroyed, but the whole landscape through which you're building and the water sources that you're affecting. These are all heritage resources, all part of our valued cultural environment that we ought to have considered in planning, and they're simply not considered. They are simply being blown away.
1: And okay. we're going to have to take a break right here, and we'll be, be right back with our special guest, Dr. Tom King. And we will be talking again about the Dakota Access Pipeline and the uh, cultural and heritage related issues associated with that. And we'll be back right after these words. Stay tuned.
2: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Why do some people seemingly make the same mistakes when it comes to love and relationships? What is the best way to find love? Make a visit each week to Destination Love. Host Shelley Pumphrey will bring what you need to know to find love. No, it's not about the next fad, dating site tips, scoring the first date, or looking your best. Rather, it's empowerment, knowing that your authentic self works best and the science behind finding love. Destination Love is live Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
3: Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV? A comparison website? Or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor, Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Noon Pacific on Voice America Variety.
0: Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time.
1: My guest today is Dr. Tom King, uh, one of the nation's uh, authorities and probably the preeminent authority on the role of historic preservation and environmental impact assessments within those contexts. And as I had mentioned earlier in our introduction to the program, um, we are in for a crazy ride uh, with respect to not only where heritage preservation is going in the next four years, but also with respect to a variety of different types of projects that are going to have to be assessed and will probably be completely redone, if not eliminated, based on what the uh, initial signals are that we're getting from the upcoming administration. We have been discussing, in particular, the Dakota pipeline, and we've been talking about uh, the issues uh, from a cultural heritage perspective that have taken center stage that began, obviously, in the latter stages of the Obama administration and are now coming up and were ostensibly well, at least for the time being settled, but of course, that's, that's um, obviously not a final situation. But one of the topics that Tom w- was discussing before was the divergent perspectives on heritage and preservation from a Euro-American perspective and from a Native American perspective. And Tom, I'd like you to, if you would, sort of expand on that discussion because the values are obviously very different and the assessments are very different and um, it impacts the uh, positions and the impacts that have been undertaken in this particular project. Why don't you give us a little bit of a window on how these two diverging perspectives look at heritage preservation and the traditional archaeological and heritage management concerns that we're looking at here.
2: Okay. Okay. First off, understand. Everybody should understand that we have we have two basic laws that we're talking about that that are dealt with in a project like Dakota Access. Um, one is the National Environmental Policy Act, enacted in 1969, and the other is the National Historic Preservation Act, and specifically Section 106 of that act, uh, enacted in 1966. Uh, Let's talk about NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, first. NEPA is basically an expert centered law. All it really says about environmental impact is that agencies have to do statements of the impacts of, of, of major federal actions. Exactly what they do with those statements is unclear, but what, the, what practice, the practice that has developed, is one of basically having experts of various kinds, water experts, wildlife experts, timber experts, range management experts, whatever, look at the impacts of a project and say what they're going to be, and then the agency theoretically considers that in planning. Well, that's all very well, but it is a very Eurocentric um Uh, Well, it's an expert-oriented system that really doesn't consider in any effective way the views of any kind of public, uh, let alone a public as sort of different as an Indian tribe. So although there are procedures under NEPA, fairly informal procedures for public participation and consultation with Indian tribes, it basically is just, oh, let them have impact, let let them have input, let them tell us what they think their problems are, and we'll um, listen listen, uh, politely and then ignore what they say. Uh, Tribal issues and public issues generally are not well dealt with under NEPA. Uh, There are exceptions, obviously, but not very many. Uh, The National Historic Preservation Act is is even more limited in that it is focused solely on quote-unquote historic properties, which are places, district sites, building structures, and objects that are eligible for the National Register of Historic Places which makes it a horribly elitist kind of thing. The, the register is maintained by the the Secretary of the Interior through the National Park Service. So you're basically saying we will consider impacts only on places that the Secretary of the Interior thinks are neat. Never mind what a tribe thinks. Never mind what a local community thinks. Now, to its credit, the National Park Service has bent over backwards to pay attention to the interests of tribes and the interests of local communities. But when push comes right to shove, their basic uh, motivation is to pay attention to those things that professional architectural historians, historians, and archaeologists think are nifty Uh, and the concerns of a community including a tribal community pretty much have to be translated into language that a Euro-American archaeologist or architectural historian can understand in order for the tribe to play in the um, in the National Historic Preservation Act game. So the the interests of tribes uh, are just very hard to represent. One of the things that I wind up spending a lot of time doing is helping tribes cast their concerns in the language of the National Register or the National Environmental Policy Act, and it's it's a difficult and frustrating and expensive thing to do so you wind up costing these tribal communities money to get their interests on the table in ways that decision makers can understand Um, i don't know if i've been very clear but that's that's sort of the the the, the basic problem that i see
1: so let's look at the dakota access as an example for example for uh for illustrative purposes. Um, If we're looking at, you had identified stone cairns, uh, geoglyphs, those types of properties and those types of archaeological manifestations, what would be an example of a traditional cultural property that Euro-Americans would not be sensitive to and one that uh, Native Americans would be?
2: Well, apparently, the Euro-American archaeologists that Dakota Access hired to walk their right-of-way didn't see the geoglyphs, didn't see the rock cairns, or didn't didn't think of them as valuable, didn't think of them as significant. Uh, So... So there's that the 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 clear obvious the, the things that were obvious to the tribal archaeologist who was a, a trained archaeologist but of tribal of, of Lakota background um, were apparently invisible to the Euro-American archaeologists who walked the right of way if they walked the right of way i don't even know i don't i haven't seen the reports i don't know exactly who walked where or when um so there's that besides that um you know archaeologists tend to look at sites and we say oh okay here are the boundaries of the site it's within these boundaries that we are likely to find good stuff Ar- artifacts burials architecture whatever and we 'll put a we 'll put a line around that that concentration of things and say okay that 's our site well that 's not the way a tribal person looks at it. A tribal person typically looks at the environment within which things exist, and that whole environment uh, the stream, the tree, the plants the animals uh, that whole environment is the Cultural resource, if you will, and so in the case of Dakota Access, you've got this prairie environment, and I don't know what the what boundaries a tribal person would put around uh, cultural resources because they were never asked. Um, uh, it would probably they would probably be a, a great big landforms uh, through which the pipeline is is being built. I don't really know that because the question has never even been asked. Uh, it's just been asked of archaeologists, and archaeologists have gone out and said, yeah, here's here's uh, where we think we could dig and find something interesting. That is a site. That is a cultural resource. That is a piece of, of cultural heritage. So it's a very different, different sort of worldview.
1: So what about in this particular situation in Dakota Access has the question of uh, these relative values or the question even uh, more broadly is question of scale, has that, has that even come up or has the archaeology in either sense, in the cultural rel- relativistic sense, uh, has that come up? Has, uh, has there been any criticism of what Native Americans would consider the, uh, the traditional cultural property versus what the archaeologists have or haven't we even got to that point on this project?
2: Well, the tribes have certainly brought it up, and and uh, in in the record of the of the case, it, it's it's certainly been brought up. It's been brought up in court. It's been brought up uh, in demonstrations and so on. I've filed briefs with the court about it. Uh, so it's certainly been been brought up. But here again, the 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 problem is that. Under, under, particularly, Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, everybody's supposed to sit down and figure out what to do. Uh, the latest book that I have written with Claudia Nisley is about consultation. It's uh, subtitled, Let Us Reason Together. The whole idea of consultation is, let's all sit down and get this stuff on the table. The Corps of Engineers by avoiding Section 106 review, uh, for which they were roundly criticized by the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. But by by avoiding Section 106 review, they avoided ever putting those issues on the table, and so um, it, it just ha- they just haven't been addressed. Uh, the tribe can say, yeah, this whole landscape is important to us. The company is saying, "Ah, eh, we've avoided the archaeological sites that our contractors have, have found. And, and they're in different universes. They're simply not communicating.
1: Can you give us an example of a situation where the communication has been positive and there's been resolution and what that might mean sort of going forward? Whoa.
2: Well, gee, not a recent one. It seems like we've had nothing but, nothing but conflicts in, right. in, in right. recent years, and it sort of depends on what you regard as a resolution. I, I worked on a case recently with the Lummi tribe in, in Washington state involving a proposed coal terminal in the midst of a landscape that's culturally important to the Lummi, and it eventually got killed. But it got killed because the Lummi were able to show that it would affect their treaty-protected fishing rights, which were preeminent over anything else. I'm working on a case in Alaska involving a uh, proposed surface coal mine in the headwaters of a salmon spawning river, a pristine salmon spawning river that is absolutely central to a local tribe's Sense of identity and its its uh, subsistence practices, and um, there, you know, we've got the issue kind of sort of on the table, but nobody is really sitting down and negotiating about it. Um, Where the the cases that I can think of where some kind of resolution has been, it's very hard to find one where there's been a sort of was good somebody winds up losing, uh, no matter what.
1: No matter how it works. Is there any particular case that's coming up in the Dakota Access, or are we, are we not even there yet?
2: In the case of Dakota Access, um, I don't really know where it stands in terms of legal action at this point. Uh, theoretically, everything stopped. Well, the administration thinks about it, uh, but the administration's going to change. So, I, I really, it's really hard to predict what's
1: going to happen there. So, there's nothing formal that's, that's actually been identified as sort of being a source of, of, uh, of concern with respect to the cultural resources situation in particular. Other, I mean, the, the project's obviously been stopped, but we know that that's a fluid situation, especially right now. Um, I'm just wondering if there are any particular cultural resources issues that have sort of surfaced uh, over the course of this long and drawn out issue.
2: Well, there's the issue of the company's apparently wanton destruction of, of specific uh, sites in order to avoid review under Section 106. And I've pointed that out to the Corps of Engineers. The tribe has pointed it out to the Corps of Engineers. The Corps of Engineers said, oh, gee, we just can't figure out whether they really meant to or not. Um, and they've, they've done nothing. Uh, as far as I know, there is no sort of current action planned.
1: Well, the the really awful part of it, from what you say, is that the the tribal archaeologist was, as you said, sort of volunteering his time onto the project, and nobody made any any mandate or issued any mandate that the tribal archaeology be, archaeologists be incorporated into the procedure, be part of an archaeological team, or even, from what you're saying, not even be considered as a stakeholder in the in the endeavor. And that's—is uh, that because it was the Corps of Engineers that essentially took over and took the responsibility for this?
2: Uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's, I think you've put it very elegantly. That's pretty much the situation.
1: Wow, so this is this is a situation that is, to say the least very, very muddy. Um, obviously, <clears throat> a lot of people are thinking that that what is considered this temp victory right now is is a temporary state of affairs, and uh, I suspect that you as well as a lot of other people are thinking that this thing is far from over.
2: Oh, I am very, very skeptical of the the victory. I think it's sort of like our victory in Vietnam. We're declaring victory and going home. Um, I don't think it's for real.
1: And we will take a break and come back with our last segment and a more extensive and uh, comprehensive segment uh, dealing with more general issues of the upcoming administration and what we might expect in the world of cultural heritage and resource management and preservation right after these words. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
2: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast.
3: All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts.
1: VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation.
3: If so, you'll want to stay up to date on the latest tech gadgets and advances for your canine or feline friend. With a ton of apps, websites, tech toys, and more, you'll want to be in the know when it comes to the real treasures and the duds. For that information, listen for Pet Lover Geek with host Lorian Clements. We test and discuss what's hot and what's not on the pet front, so you'll be better informed. Tune in Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America. America Variety. Tired of wasting time and spending marketing money with little results? Are you looking
2: for more leads, clients, and revenue in your business with predictable results? Tune in to Mojo My Business with the team behind Mojo Global, Ira Rosen, and Corey Michael Sanchez. Our program will showcase proven expert solutions that have helped countless businesses outsell the competition and gain massive market share. Mojo My Business can be heard every Monday at
3: 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: listening to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein to be a part of our discussion today please call 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to indiana jones myth reality at gmail.com now back to the program
1: This is Joe Shildon Ryan, and uh, we are discussing a number of issues related to the change in administrations, in particular the Dakota Access Pipeline and its implications uh, for uh, cultural resource management and heritage preservation. Uh, we've talked about a number of uh, contexts that uh, were brought up. In connection with the Dakota Access Pipeline, as we had said before, there are perspectives from um, Native American assessments of cultural heritage, as well as from Euro-American perspectives, and uh, there has been a temporary and... uh, a temporary resolution to the question for right now it's more or less a holding pattern but uh, what we'd like to talk to tom king about right now is for lack of a better umbrella term uh, cultural heritage in the age of trump obviously this is speculative and uh, we're just going to sort of try to discuss some scenarios that I think are grounded in Tom's experience on how the entire series of questions on cultural heritage have been addressed historically and in traditional perspectives and where he thinks things might be going. Tom, what do you see happening? I know it's not a crystal ball, but where do you see this uh, this situation evolving as uh, Donald Trump takes over on January 21st?
2: Well, if you take Mr. Trump at his word, uh, I think we can expect, uh, not only on Dakota Access, but in general, we can expect environmental protection laws and historic preservation laws to effectively go away. Um, now, one thing that I think we've, we've all learned, uh, we certainly should have learned is that one cannot take Mr. Trump at his word. So exactly what his administration will do uh, remains somewhat up in the air. Certainly his apparent appointments for cabinet posts uh, look like people who are interested in basically doing away with the agencies that they are responsible for or or severely changing them. Um, It's very hard to say. Um, Now, uh, you know, I'm, I was a Democrat until I have uh, abandoned ship in the last election and, and became an independent. Uh, I dislike the direction that, that, uh, Mr. Trump has, has seemingly said that the, the he wants the country to take. I think there are a lot of problems. Um, But I think it's all really, really up in the air at this point. Um, I do think that there is a very significant chance that very early on and very quickly the Trump administration will do away with a lot of the procedures that we have become familiar with in the cultural resource management game and in the environmental impact assessment game. Now, that may not be altogether a bad thing because the systems that we have been dealing with have become so complicated and so self-centered and so naval contemplating that they I, I've long thought that they needed to be effectively blown away. I, I published a paper just a few months ago called Let's Repeal the National Historic Preservation Act, because I think that it's become effectively counterproductive. Now, uh, will Trump do away with everything? Probably not very immediately. It will take some time to do it. It'll be messy. But I think that certainly the, the direction will be to undo much, if not all, of what we have learned to live with in environmental impact assessment and cultural resource management over the last fifty years, will that be entirely a bad thing? Maybe not, um, depending on what happens. Uh, well, afterwards. And so, I'll put in a pitch for my the award that I'm offering. I'm offering something we call the Hat Award, a thousand dollars for the best example, the best description of what heritage preservation what heritage management ought to look like after the Trump administration it's called the heritage after trump the heritage after trump award and it assumes we assume that everything's going to get destroyed everything's going to get blown away in terms of our legal system what would we like to build in the absence of all the institutions that we are familiar with and so that's all on my, on my blog, which I believe anyone can access. It's at crmplus.com, Um or crmplus at blogspot.com. Um, and I'd encourage people to think about applying. I'll be giving away a thousand bucks on Inauguration Day for the best, um, model. Uh, so I don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, I think it's going to be very complicated, very very messy. I don't know exactly what else to say.
1: What do you? What tell us a little bit about this award? Are, are you trying to? So, are you trying to uh, give an award for the most positive contribution, the refinement of? say, the uh, National Historic Preservation Act or the uh, untangling of some of the bureaucratic complications that you seem to be suggesting might not be such a bad idea?
2: I'm saying assume that the National Historic Preservation Act is repealed. Assume that the National Environmental Policy Act is repealed. And what and then assume that we go through some years and the nation gets its head back together and starts thinking about the environment again, assuming there still is an environment. <laughs> right. What, what should we do? What would be a really good heritage preservation program or heritage management program or heritage program? And, of course, the great difficulty is getting outside the box – of what we're used to. And so I get, I get emails from people saying, oh, you want, tell, want us to tell how to refine the Section 106 process? No, that's not what I want. I want to say, let, let's assume Section 106 goes away. Let's assume that it's gone. Let's assume that the National Register of Historic Places is gone. What would be a good system? What would be the best system that could be put in place uh, to protect, to manage, to take good care of, to be reasonable about cultural
1: heritage. Um, and that's, uh, well, that's what I'm after. Okay, let's step back for a minute. Let me ask you, and I've never asked you this question, can you give me an example or the listenership an example of a, a national heritage program from another country that you think uh, most closely approximates a system that is actually good and favorable for uh, preservation resources? No. Nothing uh, I even- don't.
2: I, I say no both because I am not widely knowledgeable in in international uh, uh, heritage preservation. I know a lot, I know a bit about a number of other national programs, and I know a fair amount about international uh, programs of UNESCO and so on, and I don't think any of them are particularly good. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, there may be a really good one someplace,
1: uh, but I don't I don't know what it may what it is. Okay, let's take it back to Trump again for a little bit. Uh, obviously, as you had said. Um, And we know this. There have been challenges to the National Historic Preservation Act and to NEPA in the past. Um, uh, uh, Possibly the abolition of the Advisory Council at one point in time. Um, Do you think uh, that over the course of a single term, it'll be possible to dismantle any of these pieces of critical legislation? Um, Yeah,
2: I think so. Uh, I think. Uh, it will be largely dependent on who Trump puts into key positions. And you got to remember that, that a, one of the problems with our heritage program and our, our environmental impact program is that, okay, you go back to when they were started. They were, they were started at a time when we really believed in the regulatory state as the the way to take care of things, that if we just had government regulate things with a lot of expert advice, things would be better. Everything would be okay. Well, it hasn't worked out that way. And... And one of the problems is that we set up a bunch of bureaucracies. We set up the National Register. We set up the Environmental Protection Agency. We set up the Council on Environmental Quality. We set up the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Each of them has become a self-protective bureaucracy that is more interested in keeping itself alive than in actually carrying out uh, its functions, if it even remembers what its functions are, right. uh, and that is a, a serious problem. So um, the, the bureaucracies will protect themselves, and they will. Everybody will try to keep their jobs. Uh, naturally, nobody wants to lose their job, and so I expect that. Most of the the people in the agencies, if they are told to um, basically screw over the purposes of the laws that they're supposed to be administering, will say, okay, boss, uh, we got no choice, we'll do it. And um, the agencies will themselves put the system uh, to sleep. Um, But it'll be complicated, no question. And there will be people who will be fighting it. Um, There'll be organizations fighting it. Unfortunately, I think it'll often be just fighting any change, assuming that, that what we have now is the best thing we can possibly have and the only thing to do is absolutely to fight any proposal for change. I think that's a mistake. And I lived through the Reagan administration. I dealt with this kind of thing, uh, not in as dramatic a form, but it was pretty dramatic. Um, And I don't think that the way to deal with it is just to say, no, I'm going to stamp my little foot and insist that we keep everything that we've got because it's all perfect. Um, We need to find ways to um, adjust. And I, I just don't know what those are going to be. It's impossible to tell what those are. Those are going to be at this point.
1: We only have a couple of minutes left, but you know, just to turn the tables and to play devil's advocate for a minute, uh, obviously you have a p- president-elect who is, to say the very least, autocratic. Uh, my question to you would be: Is in this case an irony or a possible irony that the bureaucracy might uh, actually? help us in this case, rather than have, say, a preservation czar who, by one stroke of the pen, can essentially obliterate all these programs, might the bureaucracy, not in a paradoxical way, serve to uh, put a holding pattern on this entire business and keep preservation oh, sure. alive?
2: Oh, sure. So, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of a time when I was, I, uh, there was a proposal by by military base commanders in the West that the Secretary of Defense uh, support an initiative to pass a law that would streamline and organize and systematize all the environmental impact assessment requirements. And I was advising an advisor to an advisor to an advisor to the Secretary of Defense (laughs) at the time. (laughs) And I said, boy, I think this is a great idea. We ought to push it. And she said, oh, no, oh, no. The only thing that keeps us alive is the complexity of the system. That's right. We have all these different interlocking systems that that create gridlock. And, uh, well, that's one way to look at it. I think it's too bad.
1: I think it's it's too bad either way, and on that note, we're going to have to thank our special guest, Tom King, for contributing to this uh, ongoing discussion. I think we're going to be discussing these matters certainly for the near future, and Tom, I want to uh, extend my thanks to you for participating in the program. And uh, until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein saying be aware and be knowledgeable uh, because we are in for a bumpy ride. And until next time, good evening, and we will see you again. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schildenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.